Good afternoon, and to our viewers on the West Coast, good morning. I'm Summer Lacey, and welcome to The Briefing, a co-production of Now This and The Appeal. Today, we will discuss the decision by 9th Judicial Circuit of Florida State Attorney Aramis Ayala, whose circuit includes Orlando, to release a Brady Alert list of law enforcement officers with histories of misconduct to the public. Joining us today are State Attorney Aramis Ayala, Northeastern University School of Law, Distinguished Professor of Law and Criminal Justice, Daniel Medwed, San Francisco District Attorney Chase Boudin, and UC Hastings College of Law Associate Professor Jonathan Abel. Thank you to our guests for joining us today. Now, weeks of protests continue in response to ongoing killings of Black Americans. Calls are mounting across the country for transformative change to policing as public trust and faith in law enforcement and the criminal legal system in general appear to be at an all-time low. State Attorney Ayala's decision this week to release the names of over 36 current and former law enforcement officers with histories of misconduct comes in response to those demands for transformation and in particular, transparency and accountability in policing. The officers' names are part of a Brady Alert list. The list is named after the United States Supreme Court case, Brady v. Maryland, which established a prosecutor's duty to disclose evidence that might be helpful to the defense, including misconduct records that could undermine an officer's testimony. Now, last year, State Attorney Ayala announced her Brady List policy, which led to the creation of two lists. The alert list, where prosecutors will use caution when calling the law enforcement officer to court because of past misconduct, and the last resort list, where the officers will be automatically excluded from the criminal proceedings because their prior misconduct was so egregious that their testimony must be excluded. Now on Tuesday, it was the office's Brady alert list that was made public. The creation of Brady lists, also known as do not call list or exclusion list, has become more prevalent in recent years. As prosecutor offices from Philadelphia to St. Louis to Houston have implemented lists and databases to keep track of officers with histories of misconduct. In fact, it was just last month that our guest, San Francisco District Attorney Chase Boudin, implemented a new policy directive that will prevent cases from being prosecuted or even charged based solely on the testimony of officers with a history of serious misconduct. Now, our guest today will discuss why the decision to disclose the Brady Alert list was made, the need for Brady lists in prosecutorial offices, and why advocates are calling for even broader law enforcement transparency. So let's get into it. And by getting into it, let's start with State Attorney Ayala. Now, State Attorney Ayala, can you begin by telling us why you decided to create an expanded Brady List policy within your office and why you felt it was necessary to release the Brady Alert List to the public now, one year after it was compiled? So the most important thing to understand is that the Brady List is, as you said, response to Brady versus Maryland. The other part of it is it is our responsibility as prosecutors to make certain 
we are doing what we need to do for a fair trial. That is prosecutorial accountability and integrity. It is our responsibility to seek justice, and that is an example of what justice looks like. Finally, we have to be very clear that this is one of those things that help us establish public trust. And so often people talk about public trust without also talking about public safety when we cannot deny the fact that they're two, they're, they're, they're connected. So let's be mindful that when I started the Brady policy, I did not intend to release it a year later. The problem was that historically in the office, this list had never been kept. There was no database. So we, spent, we took a year going through the process of disclosing um, all the information, I'm sorry, of we went through the process of pulling out all the information that had been kept for decades. A prosecutor before me was never kept in a database. So we had to make certain we had the right people to make certain that integrity was clear, that it was accurate, and we did our part. It wasn't until COVID hit that we were no longer in trials. People had extra time that we finished the process. And then ultimately, I would like to say that it worked purposefully, but it was coincidental that it was in time. My entire um, term as state attorney has been intended to increase transparency, to increase increase public trust and to show what the highest level of prosecutorial accountability looks like. So state attorney, it sounds like this was a very deliberate process and decision. Absolutely. What has the response to your decision to publicly disclose the Brady alert list been? been? And what resistance have you encountered? You know, I think it's most important to not be distracted by resistance because the decision to produce a Brady list is a prosecutorial decision. We are the only ones who have to go to court to make certain that we believe and we are certain that we can take someone's life and liberty away using the testimony of officers and any other witness. It is our responsibility to make certain that that is consistent, that it is strong, and it is reliable. So when we think about criticisms and anything that anyone else has to say, I can't really... Um, I, let me let me say it this way. I don't think it's timely for me to respond to those distractions because I have to keep my eye on the prize that justice ultimately brings, and that is trust in our community. So yes, there have been pushback. There have been responses that are not necessarily positive, but those are people who have a personal interest. I have a larger interest in the community that I'm serving, and I will continue to do what is right by the community and by the people until the last day I serve this community as state attorney. Now, State Attorney Ayala, speaking of criticisms and people with personal in interests, law enforcement critics of Brady lists, specifically police unions, often state that officers are placed on these lists without adequate due process systems that provide them with a chance to defend themselves, and that placement on these lists can ruin their reputation and their career prospects in their offices. Now, once the Brady list is disclosed to the public, obviously these law enforcement concerns only become heightened. So what is your response to these specific concerns? Well, I can tell you that it is their agency who is responsible for giving them due process. It is our responsibility to ensure a fair trial, not necessarily protect someone's um, reputation. It is not being placed on the Brady list that destroys someone's reputation. It is their conduct alone. This is a fact-finding process. And I can tell you, people that are on the Brady list from my office, out of my office, has to do with their own criminal prosecutions, matters of dishonesty or untruthfulness, issues related to um, abuse of their power 
or issues related to statements that they made publicly that indicate some type of prejudice and or bias. These aren't some arbitrary personality. I don't like this person. We have a higher level of responsibility. So when people think that they deserve more, I get it. But the reality is the criminal process makes certain that anyone included deserves the most for that to be a fair process. It would be unfair for us not to disclose this information. And that is the law. Thank you, State Attorney. Now, turning next to you, Professor Medwin, and I'd like you to just kind of back us up a little bit. Can you explain why Brady lists and a prosecutor's commitment to disclose Brady material is essential to the administration of justice? And I understand that the state attorney has already talked about that, but can you just explain even further for us? You told me to unmute myself, and of course I forgot to do so. What I said was a pearl of wisdom. I don't know if I can recreate it. <laughs> no. uh, first of all, I just wanted to applaud uh, State Attorney Ayala for this uh, groundbreaking decision and the efforts of District Attorney Boudin and others in the prosecution, progressive prosecution movement. Um, this has really been a life-changing movement, something that I couldn't have envisioned in my wildest dreams when I graduated from law school uh, 25 years ago. So. First of all, thank you from all of us in the criminal justice community. Uh, as to your question, Summer, when Brady came down in 1963, it was designed to even the playing field, to give access to information to defendants that they otherwise wouldn't have. For 57 years, really up until this movement that is being led by State Attorney Ayala, District Attorney Boudin and others, it never served that purpose. The work being done by progressive prosecutors now is groundbreaking, pardon the analogy. It is an excavator that's digging up dirt and then packing it down to truly even the playing field. And Brady alert lists are a critical piece of this excavation process, basically for three reasons. First, without a Brady alert list, it's up to individual line assistants to determine whether or not a particular item of evidence is both favorable to the defendant and material to guilt or punishment, that's the standard under Brady, or is impeachment material, which is comprised, which constitutes Brady material under a subsequent case called Giglio from 1972. That line assistant has powerful incentives, unconscious biases and other incentives to discount the significance of impeachment evidence or other types of favorable evidence to suggest it shouldn't be disclosed. Second, even if a line assistant is predisposed to disclosing this evidence, she simply might not know about the cop's misconduct. She might not have access to that information. There's a diffusion of information. And third, even if that line assistant is predisposed to turning it over and has access to that information, without a Brady alert like this, a public list, other line assistants and defense lawyers won't know about the problem. And it could lead to not only an information asymmetry, but a lot of miscarriages of justice. I'm a former public defender in New York, and in the late 90s, we didn't have Brady alert lists. We had something up in our library, which we called a bad cop file. And we would just go and look and see whether or not a potential witness in the case had had some problems with misconduct. This was not a systematic list. It was based on anecdote. It was based on qualitative research. It was based on what Jim saw or Jane saw in court. So for prosecutors who have access to this information to go into this fact-finding mission, as State Attorney Ayala indicated, and then reveal it to everyone, 
truly advances justice for everyone. I can't overemphasize how important this is and how grateful I am for this effort. Thank you, Professor Medwood. And I'm a former public defender from New York from right. the 2010s, and we did not have Brady lists at that point either. Right. So in jurisdictions like State Attorney Ayala's, where the prosecutor's office already has a Brady list, does the public disclosure of a Brady list actually serve to make the criminal legal system more fair? And if so, in what ways? Because I feel like many people might not understand why making a list like this public might lead for even more accountability within a prosecutor's office that already has the list. That's an excellent question, Summer. Here, here's my response. It's often said that sunlight is the greatest disinfectant. And I, but only by bringing these things out into the open can we as a community, and the, the community that State Attorney Ayala and District Attorney Boudin serves, only can we, the people, truly understand what's at stake in our criminal justice system, who is testifying, who is making arrests, who is investigating crime. It's not a matter of shaming officers. As State Attorney Ayala eloquently acknowledged, it's not about shame, it's about access to information, making sure that the entire community knows what people who have been sworn to uphold the law in the jurisdiction have actually been shown to have done based on a rigorous fact-finding mission. That's what it's really about, transparency, and accountability and sunlight. Thank you, Professor Medwood. And transparency and accountability is what everyone is pushing for. So turning next to District Attorney Boudin, on June 15th, you issued a Brady policy directive that prevents cases from being charged or prosecuted based solely on the testimony of officers with a history of serious misconduct, such as excessive force, racial bias, discrimination based on race, national origin, sexual orientation or gender, or dishonesty about a crime. Now, what prompted you to implement this policy? And why was it important to include acts of bias and racism, which presumably could be perpetrated outside an officer's official duties into that misconduct criteria? Thank you, Summer. Uh, thank you, Professor. Thank you, State's Attorney Ayala. It's an honor to be here with all of you today talking about such a critical issue, one that really is at the heart of the integrity of the justice system, of whether we can safely call it a justice system or whether we cannot use that word. Um, you know, the reality is the vast majority of criminal prosecutions in this country rely, if not exclusively, then, then nearly exclusively on the testimony of law enforcement, police officers, sheriff's deputies, highway patrol. When we rely on their testimony, when we rely on their investigation, as we must to prosecute our cases, it's imperative that we know the integrity of those individuals, that we know the candor and the honesty and the quality of their skills. It's one thing to say someone made a mistake. We all make mistakes. It's another thing to have a documented history of racial bias or of excessive force or of dishonesty in the line of duty when it comes to sworn testimony, for example. We cannot any longer rely on police officer testimony, sheriff's deputy testimony, highway patrol testimony from officers where we know that there is good reason to distrust their word or the quality of their investigation. Doing so, as has been done for far too long, undermines the integrity of every single conviction that the criminal justice system secures. If we want to put the justice back in the system, we need to have the transparency. We need to have the accountability. 
and we can't rely any longer on the sworn testimony of people whose evidence is uh, should be subject to doubt. The basic idea behind our policy is simple. We are going to go through all available evidence that we have, all information that we have, and we're going to look closely, case by case, at each officer who has a history of some kind of misconduct. If it's minor and irrelevant to their credibility, then of course we will continue to notify the defense about that misconduct, but we will also continue to rely on the officer's testimony. If, however, in those cases where the individual investigation reveals that the misconduct is so serious that it would call into question the integrity of the entire case, we will not rely on those officers and we will not even charge cases that would rely on those officers to be proven in front of the jury. Now, D.E. Boudin, you touched upon this, but can you explain to us really how you hope the new policy will shape prosecutorial practices within your office and law enforcement practices within your county's police force? Absolutely. You know, there's a few goals of this policy. And the first is one that I think State's Attorney Ayala and, um, you know, that we've already heard discussed in some detail, which is really the need to have more transparency, more public trust in the veracity of criminal prosecutions. That's the first one. But the second one, which is related, has to do with police accountability. It has to do with policing practices. We know, and we've seen in cases, including George Floyd's, where officers with documented lengthy histories of misconduct are protected by the unions, by the police unions, are protected by laws that make it virtually impossible for the public to know who is on their streets carrying a gun and wearing a uniform. And it's necessary for us to rebuild trust in law enforcement, that we have more accountability, and that we get those sorts of, whether you want to call them bad apples, whatever you want to call it, off the front lines. Now, the most direct way that prosecutors like myself and State's Attorney Ayala can do that is to make it very, very clear to the public to the police chief and to everyone else who's paying attention that we will not rely on officers who we have reason to distrust and who the public has reason to distrust. If we make that clear, my hope is that local law enforcement will take those officers either off the streets or better yet, out of their ranks. We should have extremely high standards for the people we trust to carry guns and make arrests and testify in court when someone's life or liberty is on the line. And if we don't have those high standards, if the public doesn't trust and know and see that we have to have those high standards, then what we're left with is a system that is not just at all. Now, DA Boudin, speaking of transparency, do you plan to make the list of officers with histories of serious misconduct available to the public? We have not yet uh, crossed that bridge. We're still in the process and it's a very labor intensive process of trying to gather the information we need to decide who should be on the list in the first place. I want to talk for a, a moment about why it's such a difficult process and then what the next steps will be once we conclude that process. California recently passed a new law, Senate Bill 1421, took, took effect about 18 months ago, that requires local law enforcement agencies to make public most misconduct files of their officers. Nevertheless, we have had virtually no compliance with that law. In San Francisco, for example, even my office, as the district attorney's office, does not have the ability to know when there's Brady 
material in an officer's personnel file. Now, this is a serious, serious problem. It's not just the failure to comply with the public disclosure that's required under SB 1421. It's not just that the media and the general public does not have access to these materials, which the law requires be made available. It's that, for example, let's take this California Highway Patrol, statewide agency, as a matter of policy, they refuse to even provide notifications to my office when we are prosecuting a case that relies on one of their officers' testimony as to whether there's Brady material in that file. Now, the law says, this is what Brady v. Maryland says, it says that as the prosecuting attorney, I am required to notify the defense if there is any material in the officer's personnel file that could be subject to disclosure, that could be favorable or lead to favorable evidence for the defense. But how can I possibly comply with that minimum constitutional requirement when the highway patrol refuses to tell me that the material exists? We have very serious hurdles like that that we need to overcome in order to know exactly what we're dealing with, which officers have material, how serious that material is. Once we've gone through that process, once we've developed our list, we will then try to work with local law enforcement leadership to get people we cannot rely on off the front lines. God forbid an officer who is involved in something as egregious as child molestation and falsifying reports is then the first to respond to the scene of a murder. And we can't successfully prosecute that murder because the officer was allowed to continue their duties, continue interacting with the public, continue carrying a gun, and now we've got a legitimate, righteous murder case that we can't prosecute because of it. Our goal is to make sure the public knows that every single officer on our streets is of the highest quality, meets the highest integrity standards, and can be trusted both in how they interact with the public, how they investigate cases, and how they testify under oath. That's the goal, and I'll take whatever steps are necessary to get us there. Thank you, DA Boudin. So turning next to Professor Jonathan Abel, love to bring you into the conversation now. Thank you so much for being with us. Now today you released a report calling for the public disclosure of police misconduct records. And as discussed by our panelists, there are often law enforcement critics, law enforcement hurdles that really kind of center the law enforcement perspective that releasing these types of records invades an officer's privacy and can cause permanent damage to their reputations. What is your response to those critics? Yeah, and so I want to really commend everyone on this panel. This is such an important issue. And it's also, it needs to go a step further with the public disclosure of police misconduct records. And so, you know, you will hear all the time officers complain that there's invasion of their right to privacy when their on-the-job misconduct is disclosed to the public, I think the perspective is off. I mean, these are not employees at uh, J.P. Morgan or Macy's. I mean, these are public employees working practically every second of the day with the public and carrying out enormous powers up to and including uh, using lethal force in the name of the public. So if an officer has a problem at work, that disciplinary problem is really a public issue. And, um, you know, privacy, uh, there are ways that uh, the privacy protections can be reduced uh, or can be increased. And we're not talking about releasing home addresses or medical information about the officers. Uh, what 
advocates are asking for is pretty simple, just that if an officer can't follow the law or can't follow department policies, then the department needs to hold that officer accountable and tell the public what's going on. Now, I mean, there are other, other, sometimes you will hear that there uh, are due process violations. I think that was mentioned earlier in the conversation. And I'm actually sympathetic to that. I mean, we've all seen really egregious problems in law enforcement investigation of criminal defendants. So it, it makes sense that when officers investigate uh, their own, that there could be problems and investigations can be politically motivated and all that's true. But the answer isn't to cover up the investigations with a shroud of secrecy. The answer is to reform the internal affairs process. And I would add that in a lot of states, there's a law enforcement bill of rights that allows officers who are being interrogated as part of an internal affairs investigation, gives them like a super Miranda protection, really. And there are a lot of concrete steps that have already been taken to protect the officer's due process rights. It's now really time to make sure that the public is protected. Thank you, Professor Abel. So in your report, you mentioned that access to misconduct records are a necessary step to, or on this path to police accountability, but that this access must also be accompanied by other reforms. What are some of these additional reforms and why do you believe that they are necessary as well? Yeah, and so I'll just highlight two of them. Uh, there are a whole variety of access rules to these public records around the country. But I, you know, I, I think the simplest one is just to say every closed internal affairs investigation should be a matter of public record. Because when you get into a situation where certain, certain complaints are public and certain aren't, depending on the topic, there's a lot of difficult line drawing that goes on. And the enforcement agencies can often drag their feet for a long time claiming that whatever record there is doesn't fall within the proper category. A really clean and administrable rule is just to say it, it's all public once, once it's closed. And then the other thing that I would add, you know, I, I love the idea of Brady Lists, but I want to point out that largely those are forward-looking, and the idea is to prevent troubled officers from testifying in future cases. But as someone who comes from the capital habeas background, you know, I'm thinking about all the people who are currently in prison and the officer who's on your Brady list today, he or she may have testified in hundreds of other cases. It's really important to look backwards. And often the defense just doesn't have access to the records. A very simple fact of how many, how many cases this officer testified in, uh, the defense can't figure that out. Uh, that's up to prosecutors and the police to come clean on that and to make sure that people in prison today, because of these... Brady officers are um, getting access to counsel and are being uh, made aware of the problems and the potential claims they may have. Thank you, Professor Abel. So for my final questions, I would just like to pose these to the entire panel. The first, a report from the Justice Collaborative Institute with Data for Progress found substantial support for releasing Brady lists to the public and alerting the public of officers with records of excessive force, sexual assault, racism, or dishonesty. Now, given the support and public demands for increased police transparency, do you all think that more prosecutors will begin implementing Brady lists and disclose those to the public? And what are the current roadblocks to wider disclosure of law enforcement misconduct? And State Attorney Ayala, can you please start us off with this question? 
I, I would love to. You know, when you look at numbers, it, that tells us what the public wants. And it would be horrible for us as public servants to turn a blind eye to that. I am committed to doing what is necessary for the public. Um, now, I, I want to address a couple of things. It, it, for the state of Florida, our, our public records requires it. So any business, any official business, I don't have an option. Um, but even if I didn't, it's not that I wouldn't. The bottom line is that it was it was disclosed consistent with Florida law. It was created consistent with United States law. So when we have a problem with the law, we've got to check those people who actually have a problem with it. Now, when you talk about what can we do, I think it is very important for us to remember that as it relates to Brady, Brady is the front end. Conviction integrity units are the back end. So when you look at the pursuit of justice, it is important for us to, and, and my office will be looking at those closed cases that are related to these police officers because I do have a conviction integrity unit. So it's the, it brings it full circle to make certain. As we move forward, we have to remember that when it comes to police officers in the courtroom, which belongs to prosecutors, lawyers, and judges, a police officer's value is his or her credibility. And if they do not have it, we would be remiss ignoring that and calling them anyway. So it is my hope that we will do the right thing, not because it's popular, not because it sounds good, but because it is the law, because it raises transparency, because it increases public trust, and most importantly, it helps us with public safety. Um, when you think about it going widespread across the country, it is my hope Brady List go widespread as these protests. Because for every itch, we've got to find out what is going on. And this could be the response to that. So let us scratch those itches. Let us respond to the cries. Let us be the answer so that the public believes in those people who they elect to serve them. Thank you, State Attorney. Now, Professor Medwed, do you have a response to this question? I do. I think it's very idiosyncratic and jurisdiction dependent, Summer. I think a lot of it depends on the relationship between the DA or state's attorney and the chief of police in her jurisdiction, because there are a lot of subtle ways in which the police can punish prosecutors who go against the grain and release Brady lists. They can engage in slow down tactics where they don't serve as witnesses or they don't escort uh, other witnesses to trial. Other ways in which they could be non-compliant and make it very difficult for the wheels of justice to turn. So I think a lot of it is the pairing of a progressive prosecutor with a somewhat progressive police chief who can work in tandem with her to make this happen. So I do think the biggest obstacle isn't necessarily uh, political or really the optics, but it is the police department itself. Thank you. And DA Boudin, do you have anything that you'd like to add? I disagree with uh, both of the, you know, the comments were just made. This is about public trust. It's about transparency. It is not about shaming. It is not about humiliating. People make mistakes and they can still be good people and they can do lots of jobs. But we should have, and I do have a zero tolerance policy when it comes to prosecuting cases that rely on police officer testimony from officers who we know have a history of dishonesty. There are many jobs where those folks can go and they can live their lives and they can work and they can contribute, they can support their families. But we cannot any longer send people to prison, in some instances to death row, relying on the sworn testimony of people who we have good reason to distrust. We can't do it, we won't do it, and I'm very excited that my office is in the process of putting in place the necessary mechanisms and procedures consistent with the U.S. Constitution to ensure that it does not happen on my watch. 
Thank you, VA. And Professor Abel? Well, I would add that it's not really optional whether you keep a Brady list or not. The Constitution requires it. And if you're a prosecutor and you don't have a Brady list, you're basically playing Russian roulette with your convictions because one day you're going to get a conviction based on an officer with credibility problems. And 15 years later, that conviction is going to come back when someone discovers that you didn't do what you should have done. And then there's a separate question about whether to disclose these lists to the public. And I, you know, I think once the officer's on the list, um, why wouldn't you tell the public about it? And you know, one of the interesting things when you look across these lists, many of the officers will no longer be with the department. But if the lists are disclosed publicly, then wherever those officers have landed, if it's another police department, then there can be a measure of accountability uh, brought to uh, that department as well. Thank you. And just to quickly follow up on specifically the state attorney's response, you know, state attorney Ayala, what do you think additionally needs to be done in order to further increase transparency and accountability in policing and in prosecutors' office? I think we have to understand that prosecutors are independent law enforcement agencies. And, you know, with all the cries about it not being due process or not us not giving due process, prosecutors are expected to maintain their independent judgment. And this is one of those. So in order to move forward, we, number one, have to admit that there is a problem. You know, we keep having this really toxic conversation about good apples versus bad apples. The reality is either we're doing the right thing or we are not. And if we are not, we also have to understand that we talk about the criminal justice system. It is a machine. It's a machine that that produces levels of injustice in, in day after day after day after day. And it is prosecutors like myself and others who are not necessarily committed to the wheels and to the machine, but to identifying the casualties. The Brady lists are a way that we identify these casualties. Conviction integrity, integrity is a way that we identify these casualties. All of the reforms are intended to recognize, one, that we have a machine for criminal justice system and there are casualties so that when in order when you ask the question what can we do differently we have got to admit that there's a problem stop making excuses for it being a problem stop being self-motivated and having self-interest where we become defensive that we oh this is a part of me no stand up against what's wrong stand up and speak out about the injustice because people are losing their lives they're losing their liberty and most importantly victims of crime who look like me and you are losing their faith in the criminal justice system and they too deserve the higher level of justice. Thank you state attorney and thank you to all of our panelists for this very important discussion not simply about Brady lists and the public disclosure of those lists but about real truth and accountability. We will be live again tomorrow with the briefing so that's Friday at 12 p.m eastern to discuss racism as a public health crisis. We hope to see you all then. Goodbye. Hey, I hope you enjoyed the show today, and um, there was a good movie out before the pandemic hit and closed down the movie theaters. Oh, I think it was in the last year, a movie called Just Mercy, Just Mercy, with Michael B. Jordan and Jamie Foxx, 
and attorney Brian Stevenson was um, the producer and the main attorney character in the movie played by Michael B. Jordan that uh, is worth the hour or hour and a half of your time to watch the movie Just Mercy. It was playing on Netflix for free for maybe a month or so. months ago I'm not sure if it's still up there on Netflix or not okay have a good day stay well stay safe healthy wealthy wise protect yourself protect your rights love you bye bye